0: Welcome to the show. As you may recall, I like to put my guests on the spot by springing an emergency call button question on them at the beginning of every episode. The emergency call button is our hotline for burning questions from hospitality professionals. And while I don't share it in advance, I do try to make sure the call button is a question the guest of the week can actually answer. So like, I'm not asking a wine expert about construction or a hotel investor about how to make a chocolate cake. Because of that, I have some call button questions that we haven't tackled on this show yet. So I'm going to do my best to answer them now. The first question comes from Daphne. Daphne says, you have talked before about how you started your company to help hotels with social media, but you aren't doing that anymore. What made you pivot and should hotels still be doing social media? This is a really good question because it's hard to answer to be perfectly honest. What made us pivot at Hive Marketing is a little bit different than why I think that hotels should or should not be doing social media still. So I'm going to answer both of those. The reason that we pivoted is twofold. Number one, because when we started doing social, like when I started running Facebook pages for hotels and other companies, this was in the wild, wild west days of social. So it was before, you know, things like a tremendous amount of advertising were taking place and before the engagement rates were super throttled. So you could really make some significant headway by posting great, interesting, engaging content, running contests, offering special rates, all that stuff, you could really get something accomplished. I can't remember exactly, but I think it was like maybe around 2010, 2011, somewhere around there, it all started to change. And, you know, of course, looking back, I should have expected that to happen, right? Because Facebook needed to have a revenue model. But It went from you could reach every single fan of a business page to your engagement was throttled to something like 16%. I think it's now probably like less than 1% unless you're paying for ads. And it just didn't seem like the type of model that made sense for me. I am a content marketer. So I really put a lot of effort into creating great content. And if we were doing all of that and it didn't make a difference. And all we had to do was throw money behind a post. It just seems silly to me. The other reason that we stopped focusing on social and I'm talking about Facebook here, but I really mean all the things. So Twitter, Pinterest for a while, blah, 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 all those different channels. And honestly, the reason we stopped focusing on it was because it was really irritating to do. It was so hard. Once we could convince clients that they should be on social channels and be doing social media marketing, then they got really, really, really granular about every single pixel of every single post. And it took so long to get content approved that by the time we could get it approved, it wasn't timely anymore. And it just didn't make sense. So, I mean, this is a shortcut way of explaining it, but it just got annoying. So I stopped wanting to do it. That is not to say that I don't think hotels and hospitality businesses should be on social media. I do think that there are use cases for that. Just in my particular business, we wanted to do bigger picture work, longer term strategy, and not get tied down in, you know, the day-to-day moment-to-moment lettering of each particular tweet or Facebook post. I will say that I'm not sure about social for hotels right now. I haven't worked with individual properties in a good little bit. So I don't have a ton of examples to share, but it seems to me that the social media landscape has matured to the point that unless you're a big brand, it's pretty difficult to make any headway. I'm also not convinced that consumers are looking for that type of content anymore on their social media. I think we're seeing a big sea change from wanting to, you know, read every word of every person that we see to honestly wanting to zone out and like scroll through TikTok videos for a few hours and not be made to get infuriated by politics or frustrated by science deniers or whatever the case may be. What I do think is interesting in social for hotels right now is um, something like what Flip2 is doing where they are really focused on aggregating user generated content and then sharing it with future guests. So in other words, you know, they pull together all the photographs that you take from a trip to XYZ resort and then share it with potential future guests so that you can get a feel for what that place is really like. I think that's really cool. And if not the only future for social for hotels, definitely one of them. What I am still very bullish on is LinkedIn. And this next question was submitted by Zan, who has LinkedIn-related concerns and questions. So Zan's question is, our company has an active LinkedIn page. We use it to post jobs and do recruiting, but we also post a lot of company news, thought leadership, media appearances, et cetera. How can we tell, and he put in parentheses, how can we prove that this is a good use of time and resources. Well, Zan, first things first, there are tons of metrics that are available within LinkedIn for company pages. So you can certainly start there. Although I would caution anyone not to get too caught up in those vanity metrics. So for example, engagement rate. Like you may see that your particular post of the day had an 80% engagement rate. The thing you have to keep in mind is engagement rate is a math problem that doesn't necessarily measure how engaging the content is. It measures how many interactions took place. So relative to the people who saw the post. So for example, if you post something, 10 people see it, and eight of those 10 people like it, then you have an 80% engagement rate. Well, is... Having eight people see something really worth your time, maybe not. On the other hand, if you post something, ten thousand people see it, I'm really gonna struggle with this math, but I think you're gonna get my point. So ten thousand people see it. One thousand people like it. That's only a ten percent engagement rate, but it's much better to have a thousand people engage with and see something than only eight, right? So for me, when I'm trying to measure the effectiveness of posts and work on LinkedIn, I'm really trying to optimize for eyeballs. There's another reason for this, which you may have observed even in your own like personal posting, which is that LinkedIn users tend to be very shy, much more shy than users of other social media channels. So I can't tell you the number of times that I've posted something and maybe had like 5 people comment on it and then heard about it from another 15 people who are like, "Oh, I saw your post, that was really smart." Or, "Oh, I saw your post, you're an idiot," or whatever the case may be. It's just like it because I think it's a professional network and people are afraid their employers are watching them. They're a lot more reticent about interacting. So, my goal with LinkedIn posts on a company page is to optimize for impressions, meaning eyeballs, because Just because someone doesn't like click like or, you know, make a comment or whatever the case may be, it doesn't mean that they didn't read the post and have something that resonate. Another couple of things I'll say about, you know, whether LinkedIn company pages are a good use of time and resources. I think it has to do with what your entire landscape of marketing channels looks like and if you are just, you know, repurposing a tweet and then putting it on LinkedIn, which I know we've all seen a thousand times before, or i don't know, you know, sharing the same thing across every single channel, that may not be as effective as just picking one channel and being really good at it. People will get to know that that's where they can find you. And, you know, the idea that you need to be on every single platform and doing every single thing all the time is not sustainable and honestly not that effective. This is probably not the answer that your boss wants to hear, but you can tell if your content on LinkedIn is working. You can tell by, what you hear from people. You can tell by when you're like, I don't know, at a conference or networking event and people are like, Oh yeah, I've heard of your company or, Oh, that name is so familiar. How do we know each other? And you're like, I know I have never met you before. It's because people have seen your content on LinkedIn and are just maybe not completely connecting it with you. Speaking of LinkedIn, which I could certainly do all day long, here is another question about LinkedIn company pages. This comes from Duran. Duran gives a bunch of detail about his company, and I'm not going to name the company, but basically he is asking about the competitors section on the analytics tab, basically how should he be using the competitor data there. This, to me, is one of the most misunderstood types of data that you can get on LinkedIn. You know, if you're the admin of a LinkedIn company page, you can find this on the analytics tab. There's a bunch of different things you can click. And the competitors report is often pre-populated with companies that LinkedIn thinks that you compete with or thinks that you're similar to. But you can change those to align more closely with who you actually believe you compete with. So, you know, if you're a hotel management company that has 30 properties, you might want to select a handful of competitors that are about the same size as you, but maybe, you know, a couple that are larger if you're trying to grow. Or you might want all the competitors on your list to be in the same geographic region as you, or maybe you want them to all be aspirational, like they're all larger, more successful, whatever. You can decide how you want to do it, but just be aware that you can change that to what you want because that makes it more interesting. If you're in the hotel business, you will be used to the idea that your boss is going to be obsessed, i.e. focused on the numbers in comparison to your comps. So in this case, they'll be like fixated on how many followers you have versus how many followers the other companies have or how much engagement or whatever the case may be. I am not saying that that's not important or interesting, um, but those are vanity metrics. And I think you can learn a lot more from the numbers if you dig a little deeper. This may require you to do some extra calculations in an Excel spreadsheet that don't like come baked into the report. But some things you might wanna do are figure out like how many followers per hotel under management. So if your portfolio is... 31 hotels and you have 31,000 followers, math, 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 you get it. Um, or you might want to do the, uh, formula to figure out the pace at which your competitors audiences are growing compared to yours. Like those are the things that are the more interesting to me versus just like, oh, they got 26 likes on this post or whatever. That's not as important. When I look at competitor analytics on LinkedIn, I'm really interested in who is growing fast or faster and who is getting the most engagement per post because those two things point me in the direction of things that I can get insight from or learn from. For instance, if one competitor is growing at a much faster rate than everybody else on the list, I can put out a few hypotheses, right? They may have grown significantly, like there was a recent merger, or they picked up a bunch of new hotels, or you know they may have recently invested more in marketing. They may have been in the news. All of those things attract more followers. So if they're growing at a faster rate than what you're used to seeing, or a faster rate than all of the other competitors, once you see that growing competitor do a deeper dive and try to understand what they're up to. And a good way to do that is to just click through all of their content. Like look at their posts. That'll help you know if you haven't already seen it in the news. (laughs) I was looking at competitor stats for the top floor LinkedIn page recently. And I took a few things away that I think are illustrative here there were a couple of other podcasts that had a lot of growth and a lot more engagement than they usually did. I look at these numbers on a regular basis. So I have kind of an idea of what their trend is. When I spent some time with their content, I had a couple different takeaways. One of the shows had added a LinkedIn live component to their content. So they were going live at a time of day when they wouldn't normally be competing with a lot of other shows. This was a new thing that they had started since the last time I looked at their numbers. And it was really driving engagement for them because I think of the novelty factor, their ability to reach sort of a different segment of their audience that they maybe hadn't produced content for in the past. And then just the straight up lack of, you know, head-to-head competition. Another one of the competitors that I'm tracking on the top floor LinkedIn page had a really big spike in engagement and I could see when I clicked through and you know like dug into their content they were trying a few different new types of content including specifically video clips and those video clips were getting a really great response. So, you know, there's no telling if we're ever going to do Top floor on LinkedIn Live or start sharing video clips. But those are two ideas that I could see were working for the competition. So that was the insight that I was able to take away. And if I were, if I needed to report out on this to like my boss or a client or whatever, I could potentially make a case for giving me more time or a larger budget in order to execute those types of tactics. Cause now I have data to show that they're making an impact for a competitor. That one may have gotten a little bit too much in the weeds. So, I encourage anybody who is like scratching their head and has no idea what I'm talking about or wants additional information, don't hesitate to reach out to me, Susan at topfloorpodcast.com. I'm happy to explain that in more detail, which may or may not put you to sleep. We'll see. The last question I'm going to tackle today was sent in by Victor who says, I spend a lot of time on well-written clear email and other communication, but I get the sense that no one reads a word I write. Any tips for making sure people actually read the emails I send and the articles I write? Oh, you and me both, Victor. Don't you love when you write an (laughs) email? Like here's how to get from point A to point B. And then the reply is, oh, how do I get to point B? Like by reading, hello. I definitely get up in arms about this on the regular, but I need to get over myself and no offense, Victor, but you do too. In business communications, we have to write for people how they read versus expecting them to read for how we write. The job is to get the information across, not to like impress people with your vocabulary, Although I will tell you that I take a lot of pride in my weekly unique word score from Grammarly. Speaking of which, I have two tips and Grammarly is one of them. At the risk of sounding braggadocious, I know that I'm a good writer. I don't really misspell words that often. I don't have grammar snafus. However, I definitely pay for the Grammarly extension that checks all of my emails, my word docs like any online forms that i'm typing in for spelling, grammar, clarity and even tone of voice. Whether you are a spelling bee champion or not, that extra set of ai eyeballs on your words can make a really big difference. For me this is especially true. I have a tendency to like get a little complicated in construction or sort of string together too many clauses. And Grammarly will really highlight that. If it's too convoluted, it suggests a clearer way of writing it. There are definitely some English majors who shall remain nameless who are offended that Grammarly even exists. And every time I bring it up, they insist on telling me about that one time that Grammarly suggested the wrong thing, which, cool. You do not have to obey it, friend. It's a machine. Just know that if you are not Team Oxford Comma, you will be particularly annoyed because Grammarly does not write in AP style. It, like me, does give an F about an Oxford Comma. And confidential to Grammarly, Top Floor is accepting sponsorships. My second tip goes back to the idea that we need to write for how people read. When people are reading online, like on a computer or on their phone, most people skim and they do it in the pattern of either a capital F or a capital E, like the letters. So they might read all of the first sentence of the first paragraph. They'll probably read half of the first sentence of the second paragraph, And maybe or maybe not all of the first sentence of the third paragraph, but they are definitely not sinking their eyeballs into those meaty sentences that you wrote in between. So as a result, we have to trick their eyes with what I call visual anchors. So these are variations in the way that the written word is presented or formatted to slow down people who are skimming and draw attention to the most important points. Bullet points, pull quotes, hyperlinked text those are all great visual anchors, but also it's just simple enough to bold some words, bold some phrases. So Once you write something, go through it and bold the key concept or the key phrase in every, let's say, third sentence or so. And then when you go back and read it, if you don't get the gist of the email by skimming only the bolded words, you have to go back to the drawing board and redo it because that's how people read and that's our job to make sure that they read what we say. All right, my friends, those are the emergency call button questions for this week. If you have a question, you can always call or text me at 850 404 9630, or feel free to email me at Susan at topfloorpodcast.com. I guess before I sign off, I better go down to the loading dock. Going down. This time, instead of like crazy antics, I'm just going to tell you about one of the most embarrassing things that ever happened to me, which was very early in my career. I had moved across country from Tallahassee, Florida to Denver, Colorado with my then boyfriend, now husband, and spent a few months trying to find a job. I had worked as uh, the director of catering for an off-premise catering company for a few years in Tallahassee. And so I was trying to get like catering jobs, right? For whatever reason, a magnificent little hotel in Cherry Creek that no longer exists hired me as their director of catering. I mean, I think I was like 14 years old at the time. They had no business giving me a director title, but I tricked them and they did it and I was thrilled. So I had a couple of dressy outfits, but I did not have a lot of business clothes. Before I moved to Denver, my mom had taken me to Dillard's in my hometown of Panama city and bought me, I think two suits or maybe three suits. So I had those. And then I had another Navy blue linen pants suit, which will be important in a minute and maybe one other one. My point being like, I was not ready for prime time, but I had what I had and I had to wear a suit to work every day. So we also had two cats at the time and the cats were like real fond of rolling around on my clothing. So I needed something to wear. And that linen pantsuit was covered in cat hair, which is so Frickin gross when I think about it now, but at the time, whatever, I was a child. And so I like needed to wear it and I, I, cu- I didn't know how dry cleaning worked and whatever. I didn't have one of those rolly lint things. So my bright idea was that I should soak it <laughs> in the bathtub to get all the cat hair off and then let it air dry and then iron it. So that my friends is what I did. I soaked a Navy blue linen and it was Liz Claiborne. I remember Liz Claiborne pantsuit in the bathtub of my 1926 apartment in Denver, Colorado, let it air dry, ironed it and wore it to work. And the flipping pants were circa four inches shorter than they had been before their swim in the bathtub. So I thought I could get away with it. I like just wore it with pride and my God, how those people made fun of me for years after about that ridiculous outfit. So let this be a lesson to you. Do not wash linen in the bathtub. And you know what? Just wear the suit you wore on Monday again, dude. Nobody will remember. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks so much for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 59. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode.